Thank you for listening to The Real Deal with Damian Adams. This is Real Sports Talk for the Real Sports Fan. And I definitely appreciate our Real Sports fans who are listening right now. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please do me a huge favor and leave this podcast a five-star rating. That one, two, three, four, five, that five-star rating review will definitely be appreciated. If you're listening on any other platform, that could be Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Podomatic, wherever, please share from that platform so that your friends and family can see the podcast. Listen to the podcast, subscribe, then share it with their friends and family. I need this podcast to get to everybody out there. I'm trying to get this podcast to the highest levels of podcastivity, and I need your help to get there. I would truly, truly appreciate it. I'm back. Took last week off, you know, for the 4th of July holiday. Just relaxed and enjoyed it with the fam. And before I even get into the show, I got something to get off my chest. I need y'all adults out there to realize that 4th of July and New Year's Eve are two different holidays. I know they both involve fireworks, so maybe you'll get them confused, but they're two completely different holidays. New Year's Eve is cool to shoot fireworks all into the night because that's what you're supposed to do, right? Once you bring in the new year, you shoot off the fireworks, and most people are off on New Year's Day. Not everybody. But most people are off on New Year's Day. Fourth of July, fireworks should stop by like 9, 9.30 at the latest. Because July 5th isn't a holiday. We got to go to work in the morning. Y'all shooting fireworks in 10, 10.30, 11 o'clock at night, that's mad inconsiderate. Mad inconsiderate. So if you listen to this podcast, you know those people that were shooting fireworks, at 10, 10, 30, 11 at night. Yo, chill. So next year, 4th of July comes around. 9 o'clock, 9.30 at the latest. Shut it down. Ain't no reason for people who got to get up at sometimes 5. Certain jobs I've had, I had to get to the job at 5. Like I had to be on site at 5 o'clock, which means I had to get up at 4. 4.30, depending on how far it was. And y'all shooting fireworks at 10, 10.30 at night. For what? That's another thing. If you're an adult, do you really enjoy fireworks? I get it for kids, right? You still have the innocence. It still looks amazing to you in the sky. You enjoy holding the little sparklers in your hand. That makes sense. But as an adult, like once you get past like 20 and you've seen fireworks multiple times, What's the enjoyment after that? Because it's not new. Uh, Kev on stage, the comedian, had a tweet where he was like, everything's made advancements over the last 20 years. He was like, fireworks are still the same. Now, you have some fireworks that are bigger than others, right? Like if, for example, I lived in San Diego for a long time, and SeaWorld would do a fireworks show. And their fireworks show was like, okay, really big, really bold. You see it, it's like, okay. That's nice. But it still wasn't like appointment viewing. It's fireworks. We've seen all the fireworks. So if you're an adult and you're not shooting fireworks for the kids, stop. You're grown. It's okay. Now I get that certain things have nostalgia attached to it. I'm a big nostalgia guy. Anybody knows me knows how much I love the 90s and all the stuff attached to it. One of the main reasons 
I pay for Mar Paramount Plus is all the nostalgia shows on there. I can go on there and watch all the shows from when I was a kid on Nickelodeon. Rugrats and Hey Arnold and Doug and uh, Legends of the Hidden Temple and uh, Double Dare and all that good stuff from my childhood. That's cool. It don't affect nobody else. I'm in the house having my good time, reminiscing about the good old days, watching Hey Arnold or Rocket Power or whatever. It don't affect nobody else. But if you're outside shooting fireworks for nostalgia, that affects the person that got to get up for work in the morning. So just be considerate. That's all I'm asking. Just be considerate. But we got a big episode for you guys today. Huge episode, man. And I'm so excited to be back behind the microphone doing what I love to do. It's a good day. And that's the theme of today's episode. Is It's called Good Shit. Because this is just a good day. I just feel good. I want you to feel good. It's a feel-good episode. So we've got a lot to get into. Let's get into it. We're going to count down the top 10 small forwards of all time. Kind of have a theme going over the last few episodes with the top 10 centers, top 10 power forwards. Now, small forwards, eventually I'll do shooting guards and point guards. And hopefully by that point, we'll be to the point where we're able to really get into our football talk for previewing the season. We'll get there. On this episode, I'm also going to talk about my experience now that I am officially a U.S. boxing official, right? So USA Boxing is this uh, organization that is nationwide for amateur boxing and is an organization that helps younger boxers get into the Olympics or just train to become professionals eventually. And you need judges, you need officials, you need all those things, you know, referees, timekeepers. And I'm officially an official for USA Boxing. I had my first event this past Saturday, so I'm going to talk about that. Uh, we're going to talk about Jerron Ennis, who defeated uh, Roman Vila this past Saturday and what's next for him. But we're going to start with the NBA because, you know, why not? We have two big superstars who have requested trades from their organizations. Damian Lillard and James Harden both want to be traded. But their situations are vastly different. Damian Lillard is on a long-term contract where if a team gets him, they have him basically for the rest of his career, pretty much, unless he decides to play until he's in his 40s. But they're going to have him for a very long time unless something comes up where he wants another trade or something like that. But they will have the rights to him for a very long time. James Harden, he opted in to the last year of his deal and asked for a trade, which is a very, very intriguing move because you put Philadelphia at a disadvantage because teams are looking at them like, yo, you want us to trade for James Harden, but James Harden isn't going to make a commitment to us. We're getting him for a one-year rental unless you trade him to a place he wants to go, which he hasn't really come out and said, I want to go here. Unless I haven't, you know, I missed it. But he hasn't said that to my knowledge. Like, hey, I want to go to this particular location. Damian Lillard has. He wants to be in Miami. And Portland, of course, wants to do right by Damian Lillard. He's the best player in the franchise's history. They want to do right by him, but they also have to do right by the franchise. They have to look out for their future. And that's where it gets complicated. Should Portland take a lesser deal to look out for Dane? Because maybe it'll show other teams, other players, 
that a we look out for our guys if you take care of us we'll take care of you or do you take the best deal most people will say you gotta do the latter you gotta take the best deal because there's no reason to take a way lesser deal if there's better deals out there so we're gonna talk about some of the options and let's start with Damian Lillard so like I said he has multiple years left on his contract so teams are going to be willing to give up more to get him and plus he's a better player than James Harden at this point so the first I went on a ESPN trade machine and you can go there you make make up all the trades you want to make up and they'll tell you if the trade is actually realistic if it'll be accepted by the league because the financials have to match up to a certain extent a certain range it doesn't have to be cent for cent but depending on the situation it has to be at least a few million dollars within each other to make the trade happen so the first trade I came up with was for Dame to go to Boston so in this trade Portland would get Jalen Brown Al Horford and two first round picks Boston would get Damian Lillard now I like this trade on both sides Jalen Brown coming off a really good year not the best playoff run but a really good year made all NBA and because he made all NBA he is eligible for the Supermax now Jalen Brown has some limitations in his game right the biggest one being his handles or lack thereof right there's times where his handles don't look professional and for a wing player especially in today's NBA a wing player should have good handles I'm not saying you have to be you know Allen Iverson Kyrie but you should have a decent enough handle to get to your spot not get ripped not worried about somebody getting ripped all the time now of course you're playing against elite defenders every once in a while somebody's gonna get you it happens to the best of us somebody's going to time your crossover or whatever in that case but for Jalen Brown it happens all the time so he has to work on that but if he goes to Portland he gets to work on that being the he'll be the number one option with you know young scoot and Shaden sharp and all those guys they have there and be able to really come to his own and I believe that most basketball players of his ilk believe they are a number one option and he'll have the chance to prove that in Portland uh, Al Horford is just there to make the money work he's older and Boston does have Chris that's Porzingis now now the problem is do you want to give up Al Horford or do you want to give up Robert Williams Portland may not take Robert Williams back because Rob Williams always hurt so I would put Al Horford in the deal just because he's a veteran you bring to that young squad just to show the young players the way and he could be there to really mentor those guys and bring them along in the last couple years of his career if Boston gets Damian Lillard you got Dame Jason Tatum Chris S. Porzingis along with like Derek White and the rest of those guys that's a really really good team really good team I think Boston and Portland should both think about this trade because that's a really good trade for both sides now the team he wants to go to is Miami Miami they don't have a player that would be available the caliber of Jalen Brown now they don't want to give up Jimmy Butler or Bam Adebayo so that leaves you with if you want to make the money work Tyler Hero and Duncan Robinson I would throw in four first-round picks, and the Heat would get Damian Lillard. Is that enough? Not if 
teams like Boston can offer Damian or Jalen Brown, excuse me, for Damian Lillard. It's not enough, not close to enough. So in that situation, if you're Portland, you gotta take the Boston offer if they're willing to offer Jalen Brown. Jalen Brown is about six years younger, if I remember correctly, than Damian Lillard. So they might be hesitant to do that because they might think, when does that clip come for Damian Lillard? But even if Damian Lillard isn't Dame time, he isn't, you know, all NBA Dame, him being there with Jason Tatum, Chris Porzingis, still is amazing. Still an amazing big three. With the Heat, of course, the whole plan would be to get those three together, Dame, Jimmy, and Bam. But outside of Jimmy and Bam, I don't think that he'd have enough for Portland to make that deal. Unless Portland's really just going to do Damian Lillard a favor, which some people believe they should. Because Damian Lillard has been loyal to them and has been the face of loyalty in the NBA. When you think about players being loyal to the organization, you think Damian Lillard, right? And they do owe him the sincere shot at going where he wants to go. Right? But that doesn't mean it has to happen. Now, I understand that in most of these trade scenario situations, uh, trade demand situations, excuse me, that the player gets their way, right? KD got his way. James Harden got his way twice, right? You have these situations where people get their way. But you also have situations where the organizations like, I'm going to do what's best for us. The Spurs, Kawhi Leonard wanted to go to L.A. They shipped that man as far away from L.A. as possible to a different country, to, the, to Toronto. Toronto made one of the best bets in history. They knew Kawhi had one year left on his deal that he most likely wouldn't stay. Now, you never know. Maybe he gets there. He loves it. He stays. They were trying to bet on that. But, you know, he was there for one year, got them a championship, bounced. Hey. Fair is fair. We gave that up, got a championship. Cool. Teams may be willing to do that for someone like uh, James Harden, but I don't know. James Harden isn't at the level of Kawhi. He's not somebody who comes in and brings you that deal, right? Damian Lillard, because it's not one year, teams are like, okay, let's see if you come in. And even though Dane wants to go to Miami, do you really see him sitting out? if he goes to a different team that is contender. Now, I do think that Portland should get him to a good team, but it doesn't have to be Miami. Now, if they ship them to San Antonio, that'll be jacked up, especially because San Antonio don't have nothing to offer. It's not like they have anything good outside of Victor, which of course we know he's not, he's not going anywhere. So that will be different, but Portland has to do his best for Portland. They can try their best to get Dame in the right situation, but they don't owe it to Dame to send him to Miami. They owe it to Dame to give Miami the best shot to get him. So if Miami doesn't have that best shot, let's look at some different situations. What about the 76ers? Two for one, killed two birds with one stone. James Harden, D'Anthony Melton, they go to Portland, 76ers get Damian Lillard. I think Damian Lillard and Joel Embiid will be a hell of a combination together. And I think that the rest of that team that's still there, Tobias and Tyrese Maxey and all those guys, will make a good team. And maybe they finally get over that hump of the second round. 
with that squad. Uh, James Harden going to Portland, one-year rental. He's there with Scoot. Maybe Scoot can learn some things from him. I think it's a good deal on both sides. Another one I looked at was Minnesota. Minnesota has to realize that the core they have now of Anthony Edwards, Carl Anthony Towns, Rudy Gobert and company, at best is a six seed, at best. But most likely they're in the play-in and they're out in the first round. Courtney Towns, for all of his amazing stats, when it comes down to we need this game, we need you to perform well, he's not that guy. Maybe a change of scenery is what is needed for him. He goes to Portland along with Kyle Anderson, slow-mo, and two first-round picks for Damian Lillard. It will be very interesting to see Minnesota with Damian Lillard, Anthony Edwards, Rudy Gobert, and two really good wings. They're not going to get rid of Rudy. They can't. There's no way anybody's going to take on Rudy at this point with that contract. They're stuck with Rudy. So they have to move Carney Towns. You just extended Anthony Edwards to one of the deals that is Supermax eligible, right? Which I can see, I see Anthony Edwards making an All-NBA team in the next two years for sure. So I see him getting a full 260. Carl Towns is already on a $200 million contract. Rudy Gobert is still on a $200 million contract. You just signed Nas Reed to a big contract. Minnesota isn't one of those places where they can just hit the tax and not worry about it. Like, it's not that. It's not Golden State. If they hit that second apron that everybody's talking about, it would be disastrous because they don't have a good enough team to make it worth all of the things that come along with that. If you get Damian Lillard in there, maybe you have a shot at surprising some people making that deep run. Maybe. Another situation I looked at was Milwaukee. Yeah, Milwaukee might be a surprise to some people, but Portland would get Drew Holiday, Grayson Allen, and Morjan Bouchamp. And the Bucks would get Damian Lillard. Damian Lillard, Giannis, Chris Middleton, that's a hell of a big three. Now, it depends on Chris Middleton's health. Maybe the Bucks do believe in it. They did resign him to a deal to come in and be that guy for them, that second guy. But maybe he could be the third guy behind Dame and Giannis. But if you're the Bucks, do you make that deal when you have a team that was number one seed in the East? Who, if Giannis doesn't get hurt in the first round, maybe they do win that series. We don't know because Jimmy Butler went so bananas in that first round. Like, just flames shooting out of his fingers in that first round. It was nuts. So maybe they still lose. But Giannis did play at least half the series. We do have to remember that. He got hurt, but he played half the series, and they still lost those games. The one game they won was the game Giannis did not play in. So we have to remember that. So maybe it is time to shake it up. Maybe it is time to bring in a Damian Lillard. Someone who, of course, is nowhere near Drew Holiday as a defensive player. But offensively, Drew is nowhere near Damian Lillard. And that defensive infrastructure is so good that you can bring in Damian Lillard and it won't collapse how good that defense is. So I think that's a deal worth looking at. The last one, the Clippers. Straight up, Paul George, 
for Damian Lillard. Uh, the Clippers have been stuck with the Paul, George, Kawhi, Leonard combination now. Uh, and, of course, financially, I'm pretty sure it's done a good thing for them as far as bringing in interest and people buying tickets. But they haven't reached the ultimate goal. They made one conference finals. And, of course, Kawhi got hurt that year. I do believe if Kawhi was healthy, they beat Phoenix that year in the conference finals. But when is Kawhi healthy? That's a problem, right? And you're not going to be able to trade Kawhi because of that. Paul George has had his health issues as well, but it's not on the same level as Kawhi, where you just don't know when, why, when Kawhi is playing. You just don't know. So I think if you trade Paul George to Portland, Damian Lillard to the Clippers, if Kawhi is healthy and ready to play and can play, let's say, 60 games and be healthy throughout a playoff run, that's a dangerous combination for sure with the rest of those role players. That's a really dangerous combination. So just to give you a recap of my Damian Lillard fake trades, I have one to Boston where Portland would get Jalen Brown, Al Horford, and a first-round pick. Boston would get Damian Lillard. I like that deal a lot. Miami, the best one I could come up with was Tyler Hero, Duncan Robinson, and four first-round picks for Damian Lillard. That would be Portland doing Dame a huge favor. The third one was Portland getting James Harden and DeAnthony Melton for Damian Lillard. The fourth one was Portland getting Carlton Towns, Kyle Anderson and a first round pick or two first round picks for Damian Lillard. The fifth one was Portland getting Drew Holiday, Grayson Allen and Morjan Bouchamp from the Bucks while the Bucks would get Damian Lillard. And then the last one was straight up Paul George for Damian Lillard from the Clippers. I think those are all really good scenarios. Really good. So we're going to take our first music break. Like I said, this is a feel-good episode. So here is The Good Life by Kanye West and T-Pain. We'll be right back. Like we always do with this time. Say the best things in life are free. The good life. It feel like Atlanta. It feel like LA. It feel like Miami. It feel like NY. Summertime shy. So I roll the good. Y'all pop the trunk. I pop the hood. And she got the goods. And she got that ass. I got the hood. Sorry. Because I'm seasoned haters Give me them salty looks Lawrence If you told me Don't hear it Switch the style up And if they hate the letter Make them watch the money Now I, I, I go for mine I got to shine Now throw your hands up In the sky now I, I go for mine I got to shine
girls who ain't on TV Cause they got more ass than the models The good life So keep it coming with the bottles So she feel booze like she bombed out of Apollo The good life It feel like Houston It feel like Philly It feel like D.C. It feel like V.A. Or the Bay Or yay Got a problem when you in the hood. Welcome to the good life. Like I'm doing the hood. The only thing I wish. I wish you Welcome to the good life. He probably think he could, but, but, oh, I don't think he should. Welcome to the good life. He told me, go ahead, switch the style up. And if they hate to let them hate and watch the money pile up. I, I, I come for mine. Yeah. I got to shine. Now throw your hands up. Getting some brain with that ass. She said, I never seen snakes on a plane. Whether you broke up, but you gotta get this. Having money's that everything that having it is. I was splurging on trees, but when I get my car back activated, I'm back to Vegas. Cause I always had a passion for flashing. Before I had it, I closed my eyes and imagined a good life. Better than the life I lived when I thought that I was gonna go crazy. And now my grandma. Welcome back to The Real Deal with Damien Adams. Hopefully you enjoyed that music break. Classic right there. Good Life by Kanye T-Pain. I remember where I was when I first saw the video for that song. I was coming home after school, watching 106 in Park, and Kanye was a guest with 50 Cent. And they were both on there because their albums were coming out on the same day. And it was a huge thing that Kanye and 50 Cent were released on the same day. Who's going to sell more albums, right? And it was a big question back then. Because 50 Cent's first album is one of the best-selling albums of all time. Get Rich or Die Trying. That was the first CD I ever bought. Was Get Rich or Die Trying. First one I ever bought my own money, right? I like, took my allowance. Went to, I think it was Circuit City at the time. And got the CD. But Kanye is my favorite artist of all time, right? Him and J. Cole are kind of battling back and forth as far as my favorite rapper of all time. They both very similar as far as producing their own music, and you can make arguments for them as a producer as well as a rapper, stuff like that. But I remember having arguments at school, arguing for Kanye over 50, and everybody who argued with me back then, I was right. Kanye sold more albums, right? Because that was Graduation versus Curtis for 50 Cent, but yeah, that song just brings me back to that point, and I was having this conversation with my wife the other day, music back then meant a little more, because your commitment was real, like you had to go to the store, unless you had LimeWire and you was illegally downloading it, but you had to go to the store, take time and money to Go listen to this CD. 
And once you bought a CD, you had to like really listen. You was like, now nah, my money. I'm gonna go listen to this CD. And if you liked it, you was gonna learn the lines, learn all the words, do all these things. And today is different because you can just go to your Spotify app, go to your Apple Music app, and you may be paying for the app, but that's to the app. That's just to have access to all the music without any commercial interruptions or being able to listen to the album all the way through. Right? With Spotify, you have the free version, you have interruptions as far as ads, and you can't just listen all the way through, it just randomly plays the album. So you pay just to be able to listen all the way through, and the sound quality is a little better, right? Like I have the beat you hear now playing through Spotify. Like I have a playlist that plays through Spotify for that. Now I have to worry about a random commercial coming on while I'm talking, right? But it's not the same commitment as going to the store, getting that CD. I do kind of miss it. Technology's better, you know what I'm saying? It's definitely making things easier because I could, an album comes out, just literally open up my phone, listen to it, right? But I do miss those days because it meant more for that album sale, for real. Like, hey, I went to the store and bought this. It better come with some heat. It, kids, they don't, you know, whenever, never have that. Or even like going to the store and previewing. Like they had, some stores had the headphones where you can go in, you listening, and you're like, all right, you know, you might be able to listen to a song or two and decide if you're going to buy that CD. Like, I miss those days, man. I miss them. But let's get back into the show. Talked about how Damian Lillard wants to get traded. I gave you some some really good Damian Lillard trades. I think those are really good options. It was way easier for me to come up with Damian Lillard trades compared to James Harden trades. So like I talked about in the first segment, James Harden opted into his player option year and then said, hey, trade me. And the way it was announced was that James Harden wants to work with Philadelphia on a trade. But for me, all I saw was, oh, the market wasn't what you thought it was going to be. No one was willing to give you the money you think you're worth at this point. So you want to get traded on a one-year prove-it deal and maybe get one more big contract before your time is up. And the thing is, James Harden is still worth big time money he's still an all-star caliber player maybe even all nba depending on how much he plays that year like he's still that good he's no longer mvp harden but he's still an all-star player so for an all-star james harden for one year what do you give up and what teams can use him for one year that's the big question right so, came up with four different deals. Y'all let me know what y'all think. So the first one, it was rumors that he wants to go to Houston. So I came up with a deal for the Rockets, but honestly, it was hard to come up with a good one, but this is the one I came up with. So the Rockets would get James Harden. The 76ers would get Kevin Porter Jr., Jason or Jayshon Tate, Tari Eason, uh, Usman Garuba, and two first round picks, right? Because that's the players that would have to be included for the money to work. And they can't throw in any of the new guys he just got. You know, Fred Van Vliet or Dylan Brooks, any of those guys. 
And does that work in Houston? Where does James Harden fit with Fred Van Vliet and, you know, Jalen Green and all those guys? I just don't see it working for Houston, so I don't think he's going there. The next deal I came up with was for the 76ers to get Norman Powell, Marcus Morris Sr., and Terrence Mann from the Clippers. The Clippers would get James Harden and P.J. Tucker. James Harden, Kawhi Leonard, Paul George. Sounds like a good big three. I don't think it's a championship winning big three because of health. But if they are somehow able to get the plans to align and be healthy, that could be a threatening big three to anybody, right? Along with some of the pieces they would be able to keep. But losing Terrence Mann and Norman Powell would be hard. Those are two very good role players for one year of James Harden. But maybe it's a deal that both sides should look at as both sides. You know, Clippers, I think, just need to shake things up at this point. And the 76ers, you don't want a player there who, does, who doesn't want to be there. Next deal, maybe the Bulls. The Bulls definitely need to shake things up. Like, there's no reason for them to just stay packed. I don't understand. Their team is showing you what it is. They are a play-in team that maybe gets an eight seed and gets swept or maybe wins one game in the first round. That's what they are. So why not do something at this point? Just throw spaghetti at the wall at this point. Like, do something. So I think the Bulls, they would trade Zach Levine and two first-round picks to the 76ers to get James Harden. Zach Levine gets a fresh start where he can be the second guy. He's the lead perimeter guy with Joel Embiid on the inside. You would move Maxi to point. You still have Tobias Harris. That's a pretty good squad in Philly. And for the Bulls, again, do something. Like, <laughs> I don't. James Harden doesn't solve all your issues. Like, it, it's definitely not something where it's like you get James Harden, you think it's a championship, but do something. Because your quote unquote big three of Zach Levine, DeMar DeRozan, and Vooch ain't really doing it. So you may as well just do something. The fourth option was the Knicks. The Knicks would trade R.J. Barrett and Isaiah Hartenstein and a couple first-round picks. The Knicks would get James Harden. Now, does that work? Because you already have your guard, your lead guy there with the Knicks, who is underpaid at this point, right? That contract that was signed for their guy is undervalued. James Harden would make more than him, right? So when you have Julius Randle already there, who's somebody who's known for underachieving in the playoffs, you add a James Harden who's known for underachieving the playoffs to that. Seems like you would put even more of a load on the shoulders of your main guy. So how do you, I don't think that really helps out at the guard position there, right? Because you got Josh Hart, and how does that help you when it comes to getting further in the playoffs? I don't, I don't think it does, right? And Knicks, 
you got lucky because you have now a star player as your point. But you need R.J. Barrett to step up. If R.J. Barrett goes to the 76ers and becomes the guy that you expect him to be, that would be a tough blow for one year of James Harden. Or even if you get James Harden for a couple of years, at this point in his career, if R.J. Barrett, who is so young, becomes more, that would be tough to overcome. So it was really, really, really tough to come up with James Harden trades. James Harden has really put himself in a tough situation. I understand that maybe the offers that he was getting wasn't what he thought they were going to be. But to opt in over being a free agent just doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't. Like, there's no way you're going to control your destiny now. At least when you're a free agent, you're literally controlling where you go. The 76ers have to do what's best for them. Understand that James Harden and the GM have a good relationship. But you can't depend on that. The GM has to do his best for the team because he's got to protect his job. So we'll see what happens there. But to recap my trades there, I have James Harden to Houston, which this was the best one I'd come up with. The 76ers would get Kevin Porter Jr., Jay Sean Tate, Tari Eason, Usman Garuba, and two first-round picks. For the Clippers deal, the 76ers would get Norman Powell, Marcus Morris Sr., Terrence Mann, and the Clippers would get James Harden and P.J. Tucker. I think that's a decent deal. For the Bulls deal, Zach Levine and two first-round picks for James Harden. And for the Knicks deal, R.J. Barrett and Isaiah Hartenstein for James Harden. I just really don't. I don't know, man. Y'all got some James Harden deals. Bring them at me because I really had a hard time coming up with some good ones for James Harden where he can go, honestly. So now let's switch gears. Let's talk a little boxing before we go into the break. So this past weekend, I had my first event as a USA boxing official, mainly a judge. Uh, I could referee and timekeep as well, but a referee never really had an interest to me. I may do it just to get the experience, may do one or two matches or whatever, but at the amateur level, but I definitely don't want to referee professionally. My goal is to officially become a professional boxing judge, hopefully soon. Right? Hopefully it doesn't take too long, but I'm willing to put in the work on the amateur side to do that. And it took a while, because first I was like, all right, let me see about becoming a professional boxing judge. I've talked about it before where I believe boxing needs younger referees and younger judges, right? We're seeing the same names of judges and referees in a lot of these big time events. And if it's not the same name, it's the daughter or son of a judge or referee, right? So like, how do you get into that space? So first, I reached out to the Arizona State Commission like after Googling the steps of becoming a boxing judge. And they were like, well, we can't give you a license without real experience, you know, being a judge in the ring or on side of the ring, right? Because judging on TV, like I've been doing for years and coming on the podcast saying what score I've given isn't the same. It's not, right? Now, I definitely experienced that this weekend. So I was like, all right, I understand that. So it was like, go through USA Boxing. 
So I went to USA Boxing and you got to pay a fee, just like you had to do, I had to do with Arizona State Commission. Still haven't gotten that money back, but it's cool. So I paid the fee with USA Boxing, uh, took their online course for judging, and also because you're around kids, you have to take this course that coaches have to take about, you know, recognizing abuse with kids and bullying among kids and stuff like that. So I take the course and pass all the tests and all that stuff. And then it lined up perfectly with this weekend's event. Reached out to the supervisor and he was excited. He was like, yes, we need more officials for USA Boxing. Please come. So I go and it was dope because it's the first like job I've been to where everybody was truly happy to help you. Like everybody was truly happy to be there and truly happy to show you the ropes of what you're supposed to do. And I had a great time and learned so much from some of the other judges. You had professional boxing judges who also do amateur just to volunteer and give their time. So I learned I was able to learn from them and also get information so I can pick their brain on how to become a professional boxing judge. Also talk to some of them who used to box and just pick their brain about boxing and different things. So, and I'm definitely going to have some of them on the podcast as well to talk boxing. So you'll definitely hear from some of those guys and gals that were there as well. Sorry that it randomly went to NFL music, but something that I truly took away from this is that judgment can be hard for sure. But because I have such a, a long experience of trying to look at boxing from a judging perspective, it wasn't as hard as I thought it was going to be, right? Because when I watch on TV, if I'm judging it and I want to have a fair scorecard, I usually put it on mute to watch it and truly just zone in on what's going on in the ring and go by just what I see, not what I hear. And that was the first thing they told us. Like, you got to go by what you see, not what you hear. Because at the amateurs, there may be a kid who has a bigger supporting cast than another kid, right? So, like for example, one of the fights, one of the kids, you could tell it was like 50 people that came to watch that kid. And the other kid had a smaller supporting cast. So, whenever that kid who had 50 people there to watch him did anything, it was a loud cheer. But in actuality, the other kid was winning the fight. You got to go by what you see, not what you hear. If you're distracted by the noise, you might mess around and score it wrong. So you got to go by what you see. So that's one thing that I definitely learned. Uh, one thing they said I have to improve on is that I still have the reaction of a fan. So like if two guys are going at it and one hits a, a really good punch, you see my reaction. So you could tell who I think is winning the round by my face. They said you have to like kind of not be a fan in that moment, just be a judge and not react. Try to keep your reactions to a minimum. And that's something I gotta work on because I'm still a fan, of course. So, but it was a great experience, man. Great experience. Uh, my main takeaways, uh, I think they should up the age limits for amateur boxing. Because the first bout, it was 18 fights. It was supposed to be 20, but two fights got canceled. So it was 18 fights, but there's three rounds each. So it's not like, you know, 20, 12 round bouts. No, it's three round fights. And the first fight, it goes from youngest to oldest. So literally, the first fight, I believe the kids were like six or seven years old. 
which they're too young. It was super hard to judge that because they're literally just swinging. Like, you could picture little kids fighting. That's what it was. It was little kids just swinging. Ah! Just that's what they were doing. So, and the thing is, with amateur boxing, you can't say it's a tie. You can't just be like, oh, that round was 10-10. You have to pick a winner. So with those, that first fight, as I'm shadowing another judge, I'm like, yo, how am I supposed to score that round? He was like, with the little kids like that, we're just kind of guessing. And I was like, okay, that makes sense, right? So I think they should up the limits to like 10 years old, just so kids can learn more technique before they get in the ring fighting against other kids. That was my first takeaway. Another thing that I think professional boxing should take from amateur boxing is that a knockdown isn't automatically a point deduction. So you can take a point if you want to as a judge for a knockdown, but the point deduction is supposed to be just on dominance. So 10-9 is a close round. If it's close, you think, you know, you have the edge to one person, 10-9. 10-8 is if it's clearly one person's round. They're clearly winning it, no doubt about it. 10-7 is like, damn, this fight almost got stopped. And they got lucky that the bell rung, something like that, right? But it doesn't go by knockdowns. So there was one fight where the referee made a mistake. There was a push, not a punch, that caused the fighter to go down. And in a professional boxing event, you have to count that as a knockdown. Once the referee says it's a knockdown, as a judge, you have to take that point. But in amateur, we didn't have to. We were like, oh, okay, we saw that was a bad call by the referee. And I'm not trying to call him out or anything because it's happening really quickly. It's fast. But because there's human error involved, there should be other points of accountability. And that's what you have in amateur boxing where, as judges, the guy who got pushed down was still winning that round. So we, were, we didn't have to just take a point from him because of it. And that makes a big difference. Now, I know in certain states they have instant replay where they can do it, but not every state has that yet. Which, that's another thing. All the rules for every state should be uniform. There shouldn't be different rules for different states when it comes to one sport. That's crazy. So they should take that from amateur boxing. Judges, you don't have to take a point for a knockdown. Right? Because you have certain fights where... I understand in, also understand professional boxing, if you want to, you can say... It's very rare. Very, very rare. But if a fighter gets knocked down, you can say it's a 9-9 nine, nine round... Or something like that. You can do that because you think that that fighter won that round but happened to get knocked down. But in amateurs, you can still get that round to the person who got knocked down if you thought it was a lucky punch. And you see that sometimes in amateurs. Right? There were certain kids who had better techniques, but maybe one kid had better power and he was able to get a knockdown just swinging wildly. Because the kid who has better technique hasn't learned maybe his defense yet. And that's something that I really took away from it. Also, with amateurs... I don't want to hear any more about if you have two professional fighters and then you say, well, this fighter beat this fighter in amateurs. They're kids. So in amateurs, now you can fight amateur as an adult. We did have, like, again, we had 18 and 19-year-olds towards the end of the day. But those fights are so different in professional boxing. It's so different. 12-ounce gloves, wearing head here. Like... You shouldn't take that as proof of something like, oh, so-and-so beat so-and-so in the amateurs, so they may beat them as a professional. No, it's totally different. It's totally different. So it's so much that I took away from that. 
and it was such a good experience. So dope. If you are truly someone who loves boxing, it's just dope to have an experience as that as well. Now, I want to, again, take this on further, and I will do, you know, hundreds of amateur fights and hopefully go on to be a professional boxing judge. That's the goal. And then from professional boxing, hopefully I can use my experience as a broadcaster, podcaster, and take that, combine it with being a boxing judge, and become a boxing analyst on a Showtime, a zone, or even if I had to build it myself through YouTube, through whatever, and continue to build on that with the credibility that comes along with being a boxing judge. So it was super dope, man. So if you're into it, hit me up. I had one guy hit me up and ask how to do it, how to become a USA boxing judge. Uh, so if you really want the information, just hit me up. I'll let you know how to do it. And because we definitely need more USA boxing judges and officials, people who are willing to referee. Yeah, man, it was so dope, man. I learned so much from all the other guys and gals out there. And I'll look forward to the next one. I'll definitely let you guys know how it goes. And you guys will be along with me on the journey because I will continue the podcast, of course. And once I become a, a professional boxing judge, it'll just be certain fights that I can't comment on if I'm, you know, judging that bout. I won't be able to give my analysis prehand because you don't want to seem biased or anything like that, of course. But that's still a ways off. But I'm excited, man. This is super dope. Uh, right before we get to the break, <laughs> let me stop yammering. Uh, let me talk about. Jerron Ennis. Jerron Boots Ennis defeated uh, Ro Roman Villa this past week. And it was a good bout. It was dominant. Like, you could score all rounds for Boots, but it was very competitive. And Villa, he's somebody who has real power and willpower, right? He has real power where in his hands, he's able to knock you out, right? He also has willpower where he just doesn't give up. He continues to come forward. He just will not go down easily. And for Jerron Ennis to be able to win by knockout over Villa was very, very impressive. Uh, Villa has been outmatched skill-wise before. I believe in his last fight against uh, Rashidi Ellis. He was outmatched skill-wise. Rashidi Ellis is the better or the more skilled fighter, I should say, than Villa. But Villa was just kept coming and eventually was able to power, use his power to tire Ellis and win that fight. Against my man Boots, it just didn't happen. <laughs> like, Boots, he, Villa landed some good shots, and it didn't affect Boots. Boots has a very good chin, as you can see in that fight. A very good chin, can take punches, and also can deliver on those punches. Very good technique, good speed. He has the total package. He has it. So, with him, you wonder what's next. Because he should be fighting for a title at this point. He should be fighting for a world title at this point. There's no doubt about it. But, all four world titles are tied up with Errol Spence and Terrence Crawford. And we'll see what happens on, you know, July 29th with that one. But, and getting close too, man. A couple weeks. But, July 29th, we'll see what happens with that one. If there's going to be a rematch. That could be tied up for another, you know, six months or so. We never know. So, what should... Jerron Boots Ellis do next. Enos, excuse me, do next. So for me, I would love to see him do a catchweight bout against Tim Zhu. Tim Zhu is the number one contender at 154. He's been chasing Jermel Charlo for a long time. Jermel Charlo got the lottery. He got to fight, he gets to fight against Canelo on September 30th 
for the 168 pound undisputed crown, you got to take that shot. You can't turn that down. So Tim Zhu now is, you know, SOL looking for an opponent. Why not put boots against Tim Zhu, catch way about 150, 151, whatever you want to do, and have that. That would be phenomenal. Phenomenal. If you can't make that happen, how about Keith Thurman? Keith Thurman, where you at? Now, if you're retiring, just let us know, bro. But you can't just be sitting here waiting for a title shot, bro. It's not going to happen. Like, you want to be active. Boots is there. You take that chance. If you still that dude, Keith, go ahead and show us. Um, Virgil Ortiz, unfortunately, was supposed to fight this past weekend and couldn't. Still dealing with issues with his health and making weight. So we don't know if Boots and Virgil Ortiz ever happen. Uh, but there's some options there for Boots. Unfortunately, he won't get a title shot, you know, within the next year. But let's get him against Tim Zhu. That's a must-see matchup right there. Catch weight right in between. Make it happen. And then the winner of that fight will be set up for the future for sure. Like, I think that's a dope, dope fight. Let me know if I'm wrong. So we're going to take our next music break. When I come back, count down the top 10 small forwards of all time. We'll be right back.
good, but got your coupe and grip your wood. And if you're riding dirty, like to split and blow you. But do it real big, exactly like a player should. Enjoy your 24, do your thing and rip your hood. The world is all yours, but still we all grind forever in the day. The choice you make is really all fine. Welcome back to The Real Deal with Damian Adams. Hopefully you enjoyed that music break. That was Good Day by Nappy Roots. Like I said, it's a good day. Always a good day when I can get behind the microphone and just talk sports and other things. I've been rambling on and on about everything today. So if this episode's a little long, I apologize. But hopefully you're entertained and your ears are getting that good flavor in the ear. You know what I mean? So let's get into... My top 10 small forwards of all time. This was a very hard list to make. Very hard list to make. And I will give my honorable mentions at the end as well. Just to give them some shout out. But this was tough. But top 10 small forwards of all time. Number 10. Paul Pierce. And number 10. Some people hear that and say, what? Paul Pierce? Man, Paul Pierce was very, very good. God gave him his credit. I know... You know, as an analyst, he can say some wild things, and he can be wild at times, <laughs> right? But as a player, that dude was the truth. That's why he got that nickname. Ten-time All-Star, four-time All-NBA, Finals MVP. His best year as an individual was the 0-1-0-2 season, as he averaged 26.1 points per game, 6.9 rebounds per game, shot 44% from the field and 40% from three. His career average, 19.7 points per game, 5.6 rebounds, 44% from the field, 36% from three. And he was so good at getting to his spots, right? Even older Paul Pierce in Washington had moments of game-winning shots because he knew exactly where to go and how to shoot from that spot once he got there. That muscle memory was crazy. In his younger days, was real athletic. People sleep on... You know, young Paul Pearson, him yamming on you, but he will do it. Or he would have done it back then. Got to give him respect for what he did during his career. So at number 10, I have Paul Pierce. At number 9, got Carmelo Anthony. Uh, Carmelo Anthony, just a walking bucket. Right, when you think of the term walking bucket, Carmelo Anthony should be one of the first names that come to mind. Right, like just, he gets that ball... In the mid-range area on an angle, he had you at his mercy. There was nothing you could do in his prime. And one of my favorite moves from that area to do is the Carmelo spin move. When he takes that hard dribble or a jab step, gets you going to one side. Next thing you know, he's spinning around you. In his younger days, once he does that spin, he's yamming at the rim. Got a little older with layups. He still is getting the buckets. One of the best jab steps of all time. 
I remember uh, I'm a Pelicans fan, so I remember when Zion was guarding Carmelo on the Blazers. So this is older Carmelo, and he got him in that mid-range area and had him at his mercy. And this is, you know, rookie Zion, so just had him just jab him, pump fake, jab him, up, jumper in his grill. And it was just like, damn, just old man them just now, right? And that's the thing with Carmelo, even if he was younger, he had an old man game where he could just get his bucket whenever he needed to in the ways that he wanted to. And for his career, was six-time All-NBA, 10-time All-Star, a scoring champ. 2012-2013 uh, was his best individual year, 28.7 points per game that season, seven rebounds, shot 45% from the floor and 38% from three. 83% from the free throw line and got to the free throw line a lot because he was so big and so strong, so quick. Just unstoppable bucket when you want to be, man. Carmelo Anthony, uh, for his career, 22.5 points per game, 6.2 rebounds, 44% from the field, 35% from three. Gotta give Carmelo his props at number nine. Number eight, John Havlicek. Now, of course, I'm not old enough to have seen Havlicek play, but you got to give respect to what he did during his time. 11-time All-NBA, 8-time champ, 8-time All-Defensive team. His best season as an individual was the 70-71 year, where he had 29 points per game, shot 45% from the field, 81% uh, from the free throw line. For his career, 20.8 points per game, 44% from the field, 81% from the line. Uh, he's somebody who, when you go back and watch, you're like, okay, have a check. I can see you had a little wiggle to your game, you know, before wiggle was really a thing. He had that. Uh, when you go back and watch his old highlights. And it's hard to kind of compare him to today's athletes, of course. But for what he did during his time, he was a bucket. He was a bucket during that time, so you got to give him respect at number eight. Number seven, got Kawhi. Leonard at number seven, five-time All-Star, five-time All-NBA, two-time Defensive Player of the Year, seven-times All-Defensive Team. His best season as an individual, you can make a case for a few seasons, but my personal best that I loved was the 2016-17 season. I thought he should have won MVP that year. That's the year that Russell Westbrook won it. First year, he averaged triple-double. It was the first time it had been done you know, in 50 years, so I get it. But as far as an impact on both ends, Kawhi's impact on both ends that year was just bananas. Bananas. 25.5 points per game, 5.8 rebounds, 3.5 assists per game that year. Uh, shot 48% from the field, 38% from three, 88% from the free throw line. So damn near 50-40-90 while being the best perimeter defender in the league. Led the Spurs to the number two seed that year. Remember, Golden State was number one seed. That was the year they got Kevin Durant. So no one was going to have a better record than them. But Kawhi had San Antonio right there. And we all remember what happened in the conference finals. Yeah, it was conference finals. Where he got hurt and had the bad sprained ankle. Got Zaza Pachulia. You remember what happened. But Kawhi, man, unfortunately, the reason he's not high on this list is health. If he was able to stay healthy and play at this level that we know he can play at, even this year, like later this, in the season, we saw him start to really get into his groove and really get into his bag. And even in the one and a half playoff games we saw, 
Kawhi at times was the best player on the court playing against Devin Booker and Kevin Durant. So it's still there. Unfortunately, it seems like his body just can't hold up, you know, but gotta give him respect for what he's had, he has done. And hopefully, you know, we get another year or two of brilliant Kawhi before the knees and everything goes out. But for what he's done, Hall of Famer, top 75, that's all deserved. It's just a shame that we didn't get more of him being healthy for a full season. So, but Kawhi number seven for me. Number six, going way back, Elgin Baylor at number six, 10-time All-NBA, Rookie of the Year. His best season was the 1963-64 season, 34 points a game. What? 34 points a game. 14 rebounds. What? Shot 45% from the floor, which for back then was really high, like, Shooting percentage back then was not high like that. <laughs> and my man was out there getting 45% from the floor on 34 points a game. Crazy. For his career, 27.4 points per game. So when you talk about walking bucket, Elgin Baylor was a walking bucket. And when you go back and watch, dog, he was very athletic. Like, he's somebody who, if you put prime Elgin Baylor today, he would be fine. He's not one of the people who, when you go back and watch, it's like, oh, okay, he wouldn't be able to play today. Like, Elgin Baylor, you go back and watch now, he probably wouldn't be a small forward, but he would still be able to play. He would be small today for that position, but he could play shooting guard, point guard, or whatever, and still be good. Now, would he get 14 rebounds a game? No, he wouldn't do that, but he would be a very good rebounding guard like a Josh Hart. He would be able to add that with the scoring. So you would get 8-9 rebounds a game along with, he probably wouldn't average 34, but in today's wide-open game with more spacing, 27, 28 points a game, eight rebounds. And, you know, back then, we don't know what his passing was like as far as from a game-to-game -game basis, but, you know, he's somebody with the attention, the attention he would attract would be able to get assists as well. So you got to give a shout-out to the people, you know, who came before you, and Elgin Baylor was that dude. Walking bucket for sure at number six. So... Before we go into our last music break, let me give you 10 through 6 one more time. Paul Pierce, number 10. 9, Carmelo Anthony. 8, John Havlicek. 7, Kawhi Leonard. 6, Elgin Baylor. So we're going to take our last music break. When we come back, countdown 5 through 1. We'll be right back. this record as frequently as possible. Then, as it becomes easier for you, play the record once a day or as needed.
Tony, Tony, right there, letting you know what you got to do to feel good. Feels good. Now, I'm about to get into my top five small forwards of all time. Before I do that, let me give you 10 through 6 one more time. 10 was Paul Pierce. 9, Carmelo Anthony. 8, John Havlicek. 7, Kawhi Leonard. 6, Elgin Baylor. At number five, Scotty Pippen. I really struggle with where to place Scotty, right? But Scotty Pippen is one of the best defensive players of all time. He was in my top ten defensive players of all time list. 
and also is very versatile on offense. He's six-time NBA champ. Now, unlike a lot of guys on this list, he wasn't the primary offensive option on his team. He played with a guy named Michael Jordan, right? Who, spoiler alert, will be number one on my top shooting guard list next week, right? But Jordan doesn't win those titles without Scotty. So you got to give Scotty credit for that. Six-time champ. Ten-time all-defensive team. Like, that's crazy. Seven-time All-NBA. His best individual season was the 93-94 season. That's a year that Jordan was gone playing baseball. He averaged 22 points a game, 8.7 rebounds, 5.6 assists, and 2.9 steals per game. On 49% shooting. Craziness. For his career, 16.1 points per game, 6.4 rebounds, 5.2 assists on 47% shooting. And with somebody who was a lockdown defender. And a lot of times when you talk about people who played back in the day, people want to pull up the individual clips of them getting shook that one time or having the one person they had trouble against. With Scottie Pippen, a lot of people pull up the Grand Hill clips. Grand Hill, if he stayed healthy, of course, would have been on this list. But that's the thing. Like, Grand Hill's on a trajectory to be an all-time great. Like, honestly, if Grand Hill stays healthy, he's top five all-time small forward. Like, that's how great his trajectory is looking. So you pull up a list, you pull up highlights like that and say, oh, Scotty wasn't a good defender. Look at him getting crossed up by Grand Hill. Grand Hill was crossed up everybody. He would have did it today. Prime Grand Hill would have been great today. Or you pull up Michael Jordan getting crossed by Rod Strickland, who has one of the best handles of all time. Kyrie's godfather. Or you think Kyrie pulled some of his stuff from? And be like, ah, Jordan wasn't a good defender. Come on, man. Stop doing that. But Scottie Pippen, one of the best defenders of all time. The ultimate Robin. I know he hates that. I know he hates that. I know he does. Um, but... He shouldn't. He shouldn't look at it as a slight. Right? When people say Jordan and Pippen, he is the sign of the ultimate duo. And will be forever. Like, there's going to be people making Jordan and Pippen references, references forever. Forever. And that should be something he's proud of, not something that he looks at as a slight. Understand that he was good enough to be the main guy on the team he was. But he got in a situation where he played with one of the greatest players ever. Some people think the GOAT. And because of that, he is the GOAT of sidekicks. And he should take pride in that. It shouldn't be a slight to him. It shouldn't. And while I'm here on Scottie Pippen, real quick, his ex-wife, man, Larsa Pippen. Why she kept his name, I don't know. But I guess she just wanted to have that, you know. But Larsa getting with Marcus Jordan, who's my age. I'm 33. He's around my age. When she was married to Scotty for 20 years, whatever. Kind of sick, yo. And the thing is, Scotty and Mike might not be close now. But from what we saw, they were cool when they were teammates. So, you, as the wife of Scottie Pippen, were around Michael and around, sometimes had to be around those kids. 
I'm not saying you was babysitting, but you saw him, you met him as a kid. You met him at least at least once, you met him as a kid. And to now be with him when he's an adult and you're damn near 50, that's wild. You know what I'm saying? This ain't a reality TV show podcast, but that's just it's a little wild, yo. This was a man. If this was Michael Jordan and he was dating one of Scottie Pippen's daughters, yo, what would the reaction be? Think about it. That would be crucifying him. Crucifying him. So I just want that same energy towards Larsa Pimpin, for sure. And I almost messed up the name and said pimping, because it sounds like she's pimping at this point. But Larsa Pippin, that's that's wild. <laughs> but I'm gonna get back to the to the countdown. Scotty Pippen at number five. One of the best to ever do it. Number four, Dr. J. Julius Irving. With Dr. J, man, you have to take into account what he did before he got to the NBA prior. And he got in the ABA. He was a two-time ABA champ, and the ABA was the best player, right? His best year in the ABA was the 72-73 season, averaged 32 points a game, 12 rebounds, 4.2 assists, 2.5 steals on 49% shooting. You got to remember the ABA had a three-point line before the NBA did, so he had more space to work. They were ahead of the times when it came to that, and in the ABA, it was more open. It was kind of like what you see today, honestly. It was more open, and he really took advantage of that, being the great athlete that he was. Dr. J would be one of the best athletes in today's game if he played today. Like, that's how athletic he was. His best season as an NBA player was the 1979-80 season, 27 points a game, 7.4 rebounds, 4.6 assists, shot 52% from the field. For his career, 24.2 points per game, 8.5 rebounds, 4.2 assists on 50% shooting just craziness and you think about the influence that Dr. J had like a lot of us we looked up to Michael Jordan Michael Jordan looked up to the Dr. J's and the David Thomasons and those guys so you think about the generation that came that were all the next Michael Jordan right the Jerry Stackhouses the Kobe Bryant's the Vince Carter's the Grand Hills all those guys none of those guys have that blueprint without Dr. J because Dr. J set the blueprint for Michael Jordan. So you got to give Dr. J just all of his flowers, man. And I've never seen somebody who ages so gracefully. Like when you see Dr. J now, it's like, man, this old dude might take my girl. Like he looks, <laughs> like he, he's one of those dudes that's like, no matter how old he is, like this dude got to be the coolest dude in the room when he walks in. Like Dr. J is just that guy, man. So you have to give him his props at number four. Number three, Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant, you know, it gets a little hard to rank him all the time because as an individual player, he may be the most talented scorer of all time. You think about his size, his ability to handle a rock, his ability to shoot from wherever, to get to the rack, to finish left, right hand, to finish over you or around you mid-range to post you up like there's nothing offensively that he can't do nothing right especially in his prime especially when he was younger and before the Achilles injury where he would drive to rack and dunk it on you and now he'll do that every once in a while but now it's more 
this mid-range pull-up, you can't stop it because I'm seven feet tall. I'm going to shoot over you. Like, it's nothing you can do about it. Four-time scoring champ, two-time NBA champ, two-time finals MVP, one-time MVP, rookie of the year. Uh, his best individual season was the 2013-2014 season where he won MVP. 32 points a game, 7.4 rebounds per game, 5.5 assists. Shot 50% from the field, 39% from three. He is somebody who's had seasons where he shot 50, 40, 90, which is the, that's the gold mark of efficiency, 50, 40, 90. 50% from the field, 40% from three, 90% from the free throw line, and you just have to give all respect in the world to his skill. Even if you think it was a punk move to join Steph Curry and the Warriors, and those two championships may not carry the same weight in your mind, which I'm with you. I I never forget, I was coming home from Vegas when I got the alert that Kevin Durant signed with Golden State and I just could not believe it. And my my wife was driving, at, uh, my girlfriend who's now my wife was driving at the time and I just remember like, yo, I can't believe this dude joined Golden State and we knew it was over. But it also talks to his greatness. He is somebody who once he joined the team, that team became maybe the greatest team of all time. And that has to go on his resume. So you have to respect it. Um, for his career, 27.3 points per game, 7.1 rebounds, 4.3 assists, shot 50% from the field, 38% from three, and it's still going. Still going to add more to the resume. So shout out to Kevin Durant at three. At two, I got Larry Bird. I went back and forth between Larry and LeBron James. But Larry Bird, three-time champ, three-time MVP, back to back to back. The last person to do that. Uh, some people will argue that Nikola Jokic should have done that this year, but Larry Bird is the last person to do that. Two-time Finals MVP, 10-time All-NBA, Rookie of the Year, three-time All-Defensive Team. That's something that has been you know, kind of lost with Larry Bird. was a good defender. His best individual season was the 87-88 year. 30 points per game, 9.3 rebounds per game, 6.1 assists. Like, dude was a very good rebounder, very good passer. We all know he's a great shooter. Shot 52% from the field, 41% from three. Uh, for his career, 24.3 points per game, 10 rebounds, 6.3 assists, 49% from the floor, 37% from three. And his totals don't rank up there like with total points, total rebounds, total assists because he didn't play as long as a lot of the others on the list. His career was cut short by a back injury, right? And I was listening to Bomani Jones. I didn't know this, but his back was hurt in the offseason. He was jackhammering his driveway throughout his back and was never the same again. So if that never happens, his career stats as far as totals will be up there with the best of the best. But when you look at his individual seasons, especially those MVP years from 84 to 86, man, Larry Bird was... A bad dude like the shooting and if he played today with the amount of three-pointers that coaches allow players to take who can shoot like that what what yo Larry Bird would have did some damage he would have did some damage today damage like Larry Bird man and thing is people get like Larry Bird was 6'10 like it wasn't like this like, he wouldn't be able to play today. Like, Larry Bird would have been just fine today. Just fine. Doing the same numbers. The rebounds, the assists, all that. He would have did everything. 
in today's game. And been even better because he can shoot more threes. But we all know who number one is. The Kang. LeBron James. Four-time NBA champ. Four-time Finals MVP. Four-time regular season MVP. A rookie of the year. Which you can argue should have been Carmelo's. That's a good... Carmelo has a decent argument for that one. But, you know, give it to him. Um, all-time leading scorer. Crazy. Fourth in assist all-time. Like, that's nuts. The fact that he's top five in scoring and assists is crazy. Um, his best individual year, like, you can pick so many years, but I picked 2011-2012, 27.1 points per game, 8 rebounds, 6.2 assists per game, shot 53% from the floor and 36% from three, and was a contender for defense player of the year that year, like, just phenomenal, phenomenal in those heat years, like, after, people think about LeBron today and say, oh my guy, he's so athletic, but you go back and watch some highlights from his early Cleveland days and those Miami years, oh my God, he was so athletic. At his size, like it was bananas what he was doing, being basically the same size as Carl Malone, moving like he moves, just bananas, the longevity, the consistency, like it's crazy, it's crazy, crazy. Uh, for his career, 27.2 points per game, 7.3 assists, 7.5 rebounds, 50% from the floor, 34% from three. Man, we have been witnesses to greatness. You know, he's the last member of the 2003 draft that's still here. Phenomenal career, best small forward of all time, no doubt, LeBron James. So let me give you my honorable mentions, then I will recap the list. The people who just missed, and I'm sorry, I know some people are going to be upset about it. Uh, Dominique Wilkins, just missed the list, phenomenal, but I couldn't find a place for him, I couldn't. Rick Berry, phenomenal career, I don't want to slight him, I know he gets slighted because a lot of people don't like him, he is, he has a reputation of being an asshole, but gotta give him props for his career, was the best player on the championship team, his stats, go back and look up Rick Berry's stats, like Rick Berry, his stats are crazy, and you know, Made the underhand free throw popular and was really good. 89% from the free throw line with the underhand free throw. And James Worthy also just missed. So you have to give all those guys props for what they did during their time. But they just couldn't crack my top 10. But maybe they'll crack yours. Let me know what your top 10 is. Here's my top 10 small forwards of all time. One more time. Number 10, Paul Pierce. Number 9, Carmelo Anthony. Number 8, John Havlicek, number seven, Kawhi Leonard, number six, Elgin Baylor, number five, Scottie Pippen, number four, Julius Irving, number three, Kevin Durant, number two, Larry Bird, number one, LeBron James. Let me know what you think of the list. Give me your list. Like, it's easy to criticize my list, but give me your list, all right? Let's compare lists. Don't just say, oh, how are you missing this guy? Oh, hey, who are you going to take out? I hate the one-sided criticisms. Like, give me the solution to the criticism, all right? It's easy to say, oh, you're missing this guy, this guy, and this guy. Okay, who are you going to take out? Who are you going to add? Who's in your top ten? Give me that, all right? Thank you for listening to this episode. I truly appreciate it. This is my therapy, man. This is my piece. This is, you know, where I feel best is behind this microphone. So thank you guys for listening and, you know, giving me a platform. And an audience. I appreciate that. Uh, make sure you follow me on social media at The Real Deal WDA on all social media platforms. I would truly appreciate it. Always creating content. Uh, make sure you are 
Shout out the podcast. If you are a fan, please help me get more fans. I would truly, truly appreciate it. Please share this podcast wherever you can share it on social media. You know, I'm not on the new ones. I'm not on Spill. I'm not on Threads. You know, it's too many. It's too many apps. Uh, I might get on Threads if Twitter truly just goes downhill. I might get on there one day. We'll see. But I'm getting old, man. It's too many apps. It's too many. Like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. That's what I'm on. So find me on there. Uh, Facebook is just Damian Adams. You'll find me and. Yeah, I've turned my page to a professional page and getting a lot of follows on there. I appreciate y'all for checking out the content. Uh, make sure you follow me for more boxing stuff, for USA Boxing and Professional Boxing. All right? And until next time, go real or go home.